Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. The great reason why we've seen so many advances in AI is if you just let the machine give it the data and just say, okay, this is a cat, this is a dog, this is a cat, this is a dog, and I'm going to tell you, you, were you right or were you wrong? It turns out that those pretty simple learning techniques can end up giving you systems that are quite powerful. But the problem is that those systems aren't very good at generalizing. They're not very good at applying what they know to something new. Something I've said is it's kind of like these poor little AIs have super helicopter parents. So getting them to be more like children, getting them to explore, getting them to try and figure things out for themselves um, actually really does seem to make them better. That's Alison Gopnik. She's a renowned expert on how babies learn about the world through curiosity and exploration. And she's now collaborating with artificial intelligence researchers to make AI systems more like children. This is great to be talking with you because you're such a good communicator and we're all about communication on this show. I mean, the, your TED Talk got f- over 5 million views. That, that already qualifies you as a great communicator. <laughs> One of the great things you've said, which is a good starting place, is there is good reason to believe that babies are actually smarter, more thoughtful, and even more conscious than adults. I bet a lot of people wouldn't get that. How did you arrive at that? Well, I think that's a good summary of what my whole sort of life's work has been about, is to try to show that babies and young children who are pretty low prestige um, things that <laughs> these kids who are, who are scampering around at our, at our knees... Um, are really, in many ways, the key to human intelligence and progress. Um, and it's this is not just me. I mean, 30 or 40 years ago when I started graduate school, the sort of general view was that children, and especially babies, were living in a booming, buzzing confusion, that uh, that they were blank slates, as, uh, as the philosopher John Locke said. And even Jean Piaget, the great founder of cognitive development, thought that they were intuitive and bound by perception and couldn't think logically. And a whole bunch of science over the past 30 or 40 years, and my my work has just been one piece of it, has shown that just the opposite is true. Even the youngest babies both know more and learn more than we ever would have thought was possible. Um, and in fact, what I've argued is that babies are really designed to learn. That's, that's what they're all about. So in many respects, they're even better learners uh, than Grown-ups are, than adults are. And we're just starting to understand 
what the sort of scientific basis for that is. Those beautiful little fuzzy heads, uh, turns out, are are full of uh, uh, brains that are doing computers that far outweigh our fanciest state-of-the-art AIs now. Yeah, that's so interesting, and you, you've really documented that. And it it seems to be why humans have such a long childhood, and you can rank the intelligence of animals according to how long their childhoods are, right? I, mean, I love your comparison between a, a raven and a chicken. Yeah, it turns out that the number of neurons that you have is very, very uh, strikingly related to how long a period of childhood you have, whether it's mammals uh, weaning or whether it's marsupials coming out of the pouch or whether it's birds fledging. The first area where people really noticed this wasn't even for mammals, it was for birds, where you see this real contrast between birds like chickens that are mature really, really quickly, kind of know everything they need to know pretty much from the time they're born, and then birds like crows that are take a much longer time to fledge, require much more investment from their parents, have you know both mothers and fathers looking after them, spending a lot of time feeding them. Um, but then when they grow up, they're much more flexible and adaptable and intelligent. And, and some of them, like the New Caledonian crows, are as smart or smarter than, say, chimpanzees are. Really, mm. really good at solving problems. They can do things like use tools. Um, so one of the great puzzles has been, why do you see this very, very general relationship between how long a childhood you have and and to be a bit anthropomorphic, how smart you are as an animal, yeah. how many neurons you have, how good you are at learning, how flexible you are. And human beings are way off on the end of the spectrum on all of those dimensions. So chimpanzee, uh, a chimpanzee is producing as much food as he's consuming by the time he's seven years old. And in for humans, we don't do that even in forager cultures until we're about 15. And in our culture, as you may have noticed... 40. <laughs> Help straighten me out on something. I get the impression that the, the way this works is we need a long childhood, not just because there's a lot to learn, but the way we learn. Exactly. By experimenting, playing with things, and putting things together that don't seem to go together, finding new ways to manipulate the world around us and understand the people and things in that world. Exactly. So one of the things that people in computer science, and I've been collaborating with people here at Berkeley working on AI, and one of the things that people in computer science talk about is a contrast between exploration and exploitation. And the idea is if you have a system, it's trying to learn, it's trying to, say, figure out what the best solution to a problem is. Um, one thing that you can do is you could make little changes to the solutions that you already have and then try and see if they make you do better. Another thing that you could do is you could really bounce around, explore lots and lots of different possibilities, try things that look crazy and odd and spend all your time experimenting and doing things and just for the sake of seeing how they come out. Um, and if you have ever had a two-year-old, you will already have a sense of which one of those just sounds like, which one of those sounds like your two-year-old. But it turns out there's an intrinsic trade-off between these two ways of solving problems. Um, so you can have the kind of exploit method, which is try and find something that's a good enough solution pretty quickly and implement it and make it work. Or you could have this explore approach, which is just try a whole lot of things. And some of them might seem really weird and crazy, but you'll find out something, you'll learn something. Um, 
And of course, the problem with that second approach is that while you're doing all that exploration and experimentation, you're not getting resources. You're not exploding. So you need somebody else to take care of you during that time when you're, uh, when you're just exploring. But the advantage is if you spend especially an early uh, part of your life exploring, then you'll end up with much better, more flexible, more robust uh, solution sets in adult, especially if you're in a, an environment that's changing a lot, that's kind of unpredictable. So you're much better off being able to think of lots of possibilities early on uh, to be able to deal with a changing world, which of course is exactly the thing that we humans are, are best at doing and seem to be evolved to do. I think a good practical example that all of us have had experience with recently is if you look at your four-year-old and your smartphone, um, the four-year-olds are so much better at figuring out how your smartphone works. Everybody's had this experience. I'm a grandma of, uh, you know, going to your grandchild get to get a tip on how, yeah, exactly. How do I turn on the light on this thing again? Um and the reason for that is that we already have a lot of biases about how a computer should work. Like we should have a keyboard or um, uh, we, should, we should interact with it by using a mouse. And for the kids, the idea that you could swipe or you could swipe in a different direction or you could talk to it, those seem just as likely and plausible. And that allows the children to actually discover these really new unexpected ways that something like your smartphone could work. So... The fact that we know a lot about how the world works means that when we're faced with something that doesn't work in the expected way, like our smartphones, we're kind of baffled. And the kids who are just exploring and have a, uh, fewer uh, biases and prejudices about how the world works are actually better at finding things out in that kind of new situation. And of course, another piece of that is that kids are amazing experimenters. So part of the reason why, you know, your four-year-old grandson knows more about how your smartphone works than you do is because as soon as he gets hold of the smartphone, he just tries everything he possibly can to make it work. He'll try 50 different swipes and different noises. And, you know, we all take for granted the fact that two-year-olds are always getting into everything, you know, give them anything and they'll do everything they possibly can to figure out how it works. Um, but that kind of getting into everything is really an experimental research program. It's a way of actually doing experiments to find out how the world works. This seems to be the result of curiosity. Exactly. We explore out of curiosity. We experiment out of curiosity. Children take the time to do it all the time. Are they born with a whole bunch of curiosity? Does it go away later? I've had, I've had science teachers say to me, how do I get kids curious about science? And he's talking about middle school or high school. And it seems that it's abundant in infants and young children, not so abundant as you get older. What, what's going on there, do you suppose? We've actually been doing some studies about curiosity, and there are other studies. And if you look, again, look at lots of different animals, what you'll see is that the young animals are more playful and curious than the older animals. Hmm. So there's something about just being young, being a baby, being a child, that seems designed to make you have this motivation for curiosity. Um, and if your agenda is this explore one, you just want to learn as much as you can about the world around you, then being curious, having that as your main motivation is, is really a good thing. But of course, 
if you're a grown-up, you have all these other things that you have to do, right? Like maybe you can be curious around the edges, but you know, you have to go out and get food and um, find your way in the hierarchy and do all the things that grown-ups have to do, including, you know, going out and finding those peanut butter sandwiches for those little curious explorers. Sounds like you have to exploit the knowledge you already have. Exactly. At the expense of getting new knowledge. Exactly. In a way, we all start out as scientists, or at least we all start out doing science. We all have brains that are designed, especially early on, to be able to do things that are a lot like what we do in science. But when we introduce science to kids in school, we often, I mean, quite you know, uh, uh, benignly say, oh, well, here's a scientist, and here's what a scientist does, and here's what a scientist looks like, and maybe when you grow up, you could be a scientist. And of course, if the scientist looks like most scientists do, which is that they're older and white and male and, uh, 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 and have a white lab coat on, that's even more indication that, okay, that's the scientist is the one who does science. And that's really different from me or different from people, uh, different from people in general. Whereas if you say, okay, now we're going to do science. Science is just something that people do, that humans do, and that you can do too. That really makes a difference in the children's attitude towards science. I had an unfortunate summer course in chemistry <laughs> where I wasn't encouraged to explore chemistry I was asked to repeat the steps that chemists had done to make chemistry happen. And from that, I was supposed to be, I don't know, exultant that I, I couldn't repeat the steps. But it's like, it's like teaching somebody to write by saying, copy down every word of William Faulkner. <laughs> and when you're done, you'll be a writer. Well, I have, a, I have an example that I like to use, which is suppose we taught baseball the way we teach science, right? So for the first five years of life, you would be reading about baseball games and maybe you'd be reading about some of the rules. And then in high school, you would get to reproduce famous baseball plays, your example of chemistry. <laughs> and you would never get to play the game until you were in graduate school, right? And by that well, time, you wouldn't be able to. Exactly. So you might expect that if you taught baseball, that's kind of the way we teach science. You don't really play the game. You don't really do science until until you're in graduate school. Um, now, we managed to keep developing pretty good science, but, uh, but I do think it suggests that if we had children, and I think there are studies that show this, if children could exercise those innate abilities that they have for experimentation and theory formation and, and inferring, figuring out what causes what in the world, if we could integrate that into their ideas about science, I think we would end up with uh, much more enthusiasm about science in just everybody, which of course is something that we that we also really need. We need people not just to be scientists, but to understand and identify with and engage in science, even if they're doing something else. I'm curious about how you've applied all of your work on children to artificial intelligence. And I get the impression that artificial intelligence, in your view, would be a lot more intelligent if it followed the path that children follow. Is that true? That's exactly right. Yeah. And many people who work in artificial intelligence, I think, uh, think that too. So if you look at the way the very best uh, current AI programs work, like uh, GPT-3 or some of these programs that let you, you know, win at Go or at chess, um, they have enormous amounts of data, right? So they play millions of games or GPT has literally billions of pieces of text in the world. And then 
they're very heavily supervised. So what happens is that the program tells the agent every step of the way, okay, you know, you're doing better. This is a better move than the move that you had before, or this is a good prediction about what the next word will be. It turns out, I mean, the great reason why we've seen so many advances in AI is if you just let the machine give it the data and just say, okay, this is a cat, this is a dog, this is a cat, this is a dog, or just predict the next word that's going to come after this word. And I'm going to tell you, are you were you right or were you wrong? It turns out that those pretty simple learning techniques can end up giving you systems that are quite powerful. But the problem is that those systems aren't very good at generalizing. They're not very good at applying what they know to something new. Um, something I've said is it's kind of like these poor little AIs have super helicopter parents in the form of the programmers. And so these sort of super helicopter programmers are saying every minute, okay, you're doing better. No, now you're doing worse. You should, you're getting closer to what I want you to do. And as you might expect, what you end up with are systems that are really, really good at doing the things they were trained to do, but, you know, not so good at figuring out how they should do their laundry when they go to college um, (laughs) or how they should do something, uh, how they should do something that's... uh, how they should do something that's really different. And of course, if we wanted really intelligent, um, if we wanted really intelligent systems, we'd want them to be able to generalize. We'd want them to be able to plunk them into a new environment and get them to do something uh, different. And it turns out, in, in fact, that doing things like building curiosity into the systems, especially early, or giving the systems a chance to play, especially early, actually seems to be one of the things that makes them better at generalizing and more robust and more adaptable um, after, after, afterwards. So getting them to be more like children, getting them to explore, getting them to try and figure things out for themselves um, actually really does seem to make them better. So how do you get a computer program to be more curious? Well, it's really interesting. The way a lot of these systems work is with a a technique that's called reinforcement learning, which means that you get a reward for doing something and you're trying to get as many rewards as you can. Um, But that's very much an exploit strategy. So what people have done is given you a reward for getting things wrong, for finding out something new for getting more information. So now you set up the system so when you find out something new, when the system finds out something new, or when it makes a prediction and the prediction turns out to be wrong, um, that's when it gets a reward. That sounds like a surprise comes into play. Past experience of the computer program might have been, if I do this, this happens. But then there's something, there's a moment where it, it does this and something else happens. Following up on that surprise, if it's rewarded, would give them a kind of operational sense of curiosity. Is is that close? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And we know from a lot of recent uh, work in developmental science that surprise really seems to be a one of the big motivators, one of the one of the things that leads to learning. Whether you're talking about a baby who you know, sees a car go off the end of a ramp and appear to hover in midair, or you're talking about um, an AI that's trying to solve an Atari game and then sees that something unusual has happened. And, you know, what you might think a lot of times is, okay, surprise is a bad thing, right? You just want to be more effective. If you're in this exploit mode, then you don't want to be, you don't want to be surprised. Surprises are not good. Uh, But if you're in the explore mode, if you want to be curious, then surprises are exactly what you want. 
And there's lovely uh, work showing that even babies, I mean, even really young babies, like six-month-olds, will look longer at something that's surprising than they will at something that's obvious. So just the fact that something is unexpected means draws the baby's attention to it, and they Mm. want to find out more about it. When we come back from our break, Alison Gopnik tells me about how children start to become aware that others may not see the world the way they do, and how that could be a way to make AI systems smarter. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Alison Gopnik. We've been talking about how babies learn the way the physical world works by experimenting. But babies also have to learn about how people work. How do babies use social cues in a way that artificial intelligence doesn't? Our group at Berkeley um, has the acronym of MESS, which seems very appropriate for thinking about children. So the three (laughs) things that we think are are really important um, for children's learning are that they build models, something we talked about before. They build up these intuitive theories. They're trying to understand the world. They explore the world, something we just talked about. They experiment, they get into everything. And they're also social learners. So they're very, very good at taking cues from the other people around them and using those cues to, to figure out how the world works and also to figure out how people work. And work that I did way back in the 80s Um, we started looking at what's now called theory of mind. How do children understand the minds of the other people around them? That's, even for us as adults, that's the most challenging problem that we ever have, right? I mean, okay, you know, physics and quarks are all very well, but trying to figure out why my husband was grumpy this morning, not that my husband is ever grumpy, but um, (laughs) that's the thing that really drives your, motivates you to, to think and learn. And we discovered that even very, small children, even babies and toddlers, are putting a lot of effort and energy into learning how other people work. The the whole idea of theory of mind is uh, curious to me. Apparently, we go through stages. The first stage is assuming that what's going on in our mind is going on in the mind of the other person. Mm -hmm. And then we realize that they could have a mindset of their own. And at that point, 
which I heard was around the age of five. Mm -hmm. At that point, that's when the kid is able to lie because they realize people can see things differently in their own heads. Mm -hmm. But you seem to have discovered theory of mind at 18 months. Well, this is really interesting. So what you're saying is exactly right. And there is this really big difference between four and five-year-olds. And back in the 80s, that was what we discovered. But of course, when you're understanding someone's mind, it's not just about what they think or what they believe, but there are other aspects of the mind, how people feel or what they want. And what we did was look at when you understand that someone else could want something different than you do. And it turns out that that's something that um, kids understand much earlier than their Mm. understanding that someone could think something uh, different than you do. And there's other studies that show that, for example, understanding that when someone reaches for something, it's because they want it. Even seven to nine-month-olds, even infants, understand that. They seem to understand that when we act, we're doing it because we have goals. There's something that we want to get done. And that makes us really different from, you know, sticks and um, objects that are out, physical objects that are out there in the world. And what we did was we did a study where we tried to just use food. When do you start realizing that other people could uh, like something that you don't, which is a big a big issue for children. How do you study that? So the way that we studied it was that we gave the children two bowls of food, um, one bowl of broccoli and one bowl of goldfish crackers. And you will be unsurprised to hear that all the children think that goldfish crackers are better than uh, broccoli, (laughs) even in Berkeley. Um, And then the experimenter would take a little bit of food from each bowl and either make a sort of disgusted face or a happy face. So either, oh, yuck, broccoli or oh, yuck, um, crackers, oh, yum, broccoli. And half the time she would show that her preferences were the opposite of the child. So she'd act as if she really loved the broccoli and didn't like the crackers. And what we discovered was that sometime in the second year, sometime basically between 18 months and 24 months, children seemed to start to understand that other people could want something different than they want themselves. And it's interesting because that's much earlier than they can understand that someone might believe or think something different uh, than Mm. they do. And even later, um, you know, it's not until kids are about seven or eight that they can understand that you and I could have the same beliefs, but we could draw different conclusions from those beliefs, which is something that's, you know, obviously really important when we're trying to communicate to other people. So it isn't as if there's just a single thing that's theory of mind that happens at a particular age. It's that we very gradually start out from just understanding basic things about emotions and goals, and then we start understanding about what people want, and then we start understanding about what they think, and then we start understanding about what conclusions they can draw. And, you know, even as grown-ups, we're still trying to figure out exactly what's going on with other people. And again, if you think about the artificial intelligence example, we're never going to have artificial intelligence that will actually be useful unless that artificial intelligence can communicate and interact with people. Um, So figuring out people turns out to be something really important. A lovely example of this that I really like is my colleague Anka Dragan at at Berkeley has been looking at self-driving cars. Okay, so you'd think self-driving cars, that's easy. That's just a technical AI thing. You just have to figure out how to get them to stay on the road. But of course, if you think about it, when you're actually driving, the big problem isn't the cars. It's the other people, right? You have to... (laughs) 
You have to be there and figure out what all those other drivers are about to do and why they're about to do it and what they're thinking and what they want uh, to be able to be a good driver. So Enka thinks if you wanted a self-driving car that was really that could really do what a driver would do, not only would it have to understand the road, but it has to understand all those other uh, it has to understand all those other people. So is there any hope that as we continue to try to refine artificial intelligence that we'll be able to mimic taking into account the other person's perspective or is that going to always be impossible? Well, I think that's a really good question and we don't know what the answer is yet. Um, I just saw a study that just came out that took, you know, GPT-3, which is this big, powerful language model, very good at talking, and it gave GPT some simple theory of mind questions like, you know, what does this person believe? And it was really, really bad at answering those questions. Hmm. So, uh, so that actually seems to be quite challenging for our current generation of AI. And I think in general, when we think about AI, um, it's a bit of a mistake to think that the aim of doing, um, doing AI should be to try and invent another agent that's just like a human. I mean, as I say, mm. sometimes we know how to make little humans. Um, <laughs> nobody, we don't have any problem doing that. We, can, <laughs> we know that there are these amazing computers out there that can learn better than any computers that we've ever known. And not only do we know they're out there, but we know how to produce them. Um, and it's more fun than programming. Not only that, it worries me that if we develop a computer that can actually mimic a child and a child's development, do we want to go through a whole generation of computers that are teenage computers? Yes. So I think I think the general feeling is we want to develop systems that are complementary to human intelligence mm. rather than, you know, imitating human intelligence. So we want we want systems that could uh interact with people, but it turns out that even to make a system that can do something very simple like a robot that can fold laundry or sort uh, screws and nails, you need a lot of these kind of childlike abilities to explore or to learn from the other people around you. Um, and I think the learning from other people around you is going to be particularly important. You know, there are all of these worries about the the paperclip apocalypse that somehow the you're going to tell the uh, the machine to produce paperclips and it'll just turn everything in the world into a paperclip. Um, uh, <laughs> How do you, how do you, in, in AI, they talk about this as the alignment problem. There's a wonderful book by Brian Christian with that title. So the problem is, how do you get these systems to recognize the values that we have as human beings? And of course, that's one of the things that we have to do with children all the time. So what being a parent is all about is having this system that's out there that you want to, you know, you don't want to just shape them. You don't want them to be exactly like you, but you want them to be doing things and having values that are useful. And I think it's a really interesting challenge about how we're going to do that, uh, how we could do that with computers. And maybe looking at caregivers and parents will give us some cues about how we can interact with, uh, with these other kinds of intelligences around us. So do you think we know enough now to keep AI from hurting us more than it does already? Yeah, I think a lot of AI, I've argued this, a lot of AI is actually more like a kind of cultural technology, like writing or print or even internet search itself than it is like an agent that's going out and doing things. So mm. a lot of what it's doing is 
kind of crowdsourcing. It's taking all the information that, say, is on the internet and all the texts on the internet, and it's letting humans access that in a, in a particularly um, easy form. And one of the things about those cultural technologies is they've always been double-edged swords, right? So going back to Socrates saying that writing was a terrible idea because people would think that things were true just because they were written down. <laughs> or, um, you know, the same printing innovations that let Benjamin Franklin... Uh, pass around ideas about democracy, also in France led to this terrible flood of libel and pornography that rivals anything that you could see on the internet, uh, the internet now, and actually led to really terrible consequences in the in the French Revolution. Now, I think what we've always done in the past is when we've had these new technologies, very quickly we've had to figure out what are the rules, what are the norms, what do we do, what are the institutions we have that keep them in check. So, we started having newspapers and editors and fact-checkers as a way of not just having this stream of printed material and pamphlets that nobody had any kind of control over. And I think people are very, very deeply involved in trying to do that with AI now. So if you think about these systems as basically capturing the way that people are now, well, people are irrational and they're sexist and they're racist and there's all sorts of terrible things about um about what people are like, and we have to figure out new uh, new norms and new laws and new ways of interacting with these systems that will bring out the best of them instead of the worst in in the way that we've done in the past for things like writing or or print. Um, there's some interesting examples. Like I I think we underplay Wikipedia, for instance. Wikipedia is a wonderful example of a. a system that really works pretty well. Yeah, I, I think it does. There are things you can find on Wikipedia, especially about yourself, who, who you who <laughs> might have more familiarity with than something else, that are promoting memes right. that aren't necessarily real. But it, it does an amazing job when you think of all the ways it could go wrong, that it goes right. So I think what we need to do now is figure out what kinds of what are some of the features of the systems that are working pretty well and how can we how can we dial those up and and get rid of some of the features that are not working so well a nice study that led to some of even some of the twitter features you may have noticed that now if you retweet something on twitter it will say do you want to do this have you read this article and that actually came from psychological studies that showed that just slowing people down just saying wait a few minutes before you uh, before you do this, actually leads to much better, uh, much better effects. And if you think about, you know, I like the example sometimes of think about electricity. Think about, you know, in the early 20th century, if someone had said, okay, we're going to take this incredibly powerful force that we know burns things down and we're going to put it in everybody's house. Um, everybody's house is going to have this stuff that is like lightning, right? Um, and it turns out we invented things like circuit breakers. Um, you know, we figured yeah. out all that all that boring electricity code that when you're remodeling your house, you know, there's this big thick book about what the electrician has to do. Um, and I think we need kind of the equivalent of builder's code or electricity code for AI. Well, that's a, that's a very encouraging note to end our conversation on. <laughs> we always end our show with seven quick questions. Mm-hmm. First question, what do you wish you really understood? Oh, that's easy. That's how children can manage to be so crazy and so sensible at the same time. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? 
Oh, good question. Um, what you could just say is, how likely is that? Not you're wrong, but here's another possibility. How likely do you think what you think is compared to this other possibility? That's interesting. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Well, if you study babies and children, all right, here's the most common one and also the strangest. Yes. What everybody always wants to know is, how can we get them to do it better, right? How can we get them to do it better? How can we get them to do it faster? Um, Piaget, the great developmental psychologist, called this la question américaine because he said when he <laughs> went around the world, he'd tell people about how brilliant the kids were and all the things they could do. And he said, in America, someone would always say, but how can we get them to do it faster? Um, so that's a common question, but it's a very, think about it for five minutes. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. The kids are already as smart as they possibly could be. We're nothing we do is going to make them smarter and making them do it all faster is probably going to make it not as good. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, I, I have no solutions to this at all. I'm, <laughs> I have, uh, as a again, as a grandmother of three grandchildren who are all compulsive talkers, <laughs> I, I, have no, I have no suggestions. One of the best answers to that question. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you've never met. How do you start up a genuine conversation? That's a really good that's a really good question. My husband, who's much better at this than I am, always says if it's a couple, ask them how they met. And mm. everybody wants to tell the story of how they mm. met. Um, and for a single person, ask them where they come from. And everybody wants to tell the story of where they came from. Um, I think another nice one is, what's your first memory as a developmentalist? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I've never heard that. Yeah, if yeah. you ask people, like, what's the first thing you remember, there's almost always an interesting story about what the first thing is they remember, and it tells you a lot about where they came from. Next to last question, what gives you confidence? Oh, good question, especially uh, especially nowadays. I think the fact that each generation is changing and adapting and revising the things that the previous generation has done in ways that you can't anticipate beforehand. I think that is something that gives you confidence that, you know, the old line about the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I think each generation of children and adolescents, even if they're doing things that seem sort of weird and strange to us from the previous generation, is doing that. They're bending the arc. They're changing things. They're revising things. They're doing things in new ways. And they're exploring. And that gives me confidence that we'll go in the right directions instead of the wrong direction. Great. Last question. What book changed your life? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. And there's sort of, there's too many, uh, there's too many answers. Um, oh, well, one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite books is the philosopher David Hume's uh, a treatise on human understanding. Mm. And that is a book that could change your life in the sense that it, it gives you a really different perspective on what's going on around you. What Hume does, which is sort of amazing, is he's a, a thoroughgoing skeptic. He goes out around and says, look, there's an, I'm not sure anything that I believe is true. I'm not sure there's an external world. I'm not sure there's a me. I'm not sure there's a mm -hmm. me inside. But then he says, but you know what? everything's fine. I could be skeptical about all of that and I still go out and get my, you know, I still go, I, I can still 
go and uh, play dominoes and I can still get a sandwich for lunch. And, um, and I think that it's a sort of Buddhist attitude that I think is really good. You could be skeptical, but that's not a crisis. Doubting and being skeptical about what's going on around you doesn't keep you from being out in the world. That's great. What, what a lovely conversation. I had such a good time talking with you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it, too. Thank you for having me. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Alison Gopnik is Professor of Psychology and Affiliate Professor of Philosophy at the University of California, Berkeley. She's the author of several best-selling books, including The Scientist in the Crib and The Philosophical Baby. She also writes the Mind and Matter column for the Wall Street Journal, and her website is alisongopnik.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Thomas Boothby. He's a world expert on my favorite animal. You do need a microscope to see it, but then it's a revelation. Tardigrades have been found on every continent, including Antarctica. Um, you find them at the bottom of the ocean. They've been found at the tops of the Himalayas. You know, you'll find them in very dry places like, like deserts, but also in wet places. But despite being found in all these kind of crazy, remote, distant lands, uh, if you have a microscope and you go in your backyard and pick up some moss and, and look at it, you, you would probably find some tardigrades just in your backyard as well. So they're really quite cosmopolitan. Thomas Boothby and why tardigrades are not only cosmopolitan, they're the ultimate survivalists. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. While no one knows what tomorrow may bring, Bridgestone is working toward a more positive outlook. With innovations like developing a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials. It's just one of the many ways Bridgestone is making a difference today, for generations to come. Because that's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials program, the world opened up. 
He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Psst. Hey, it's me, your barista. So you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, now in stores. It's foaming delicious. 